month in January, Wheaton Bible Church has two short-term mission trip teams, we call them GO teams, going to the country of Kenya. Two teams, one country, Kenya. Rhonda and I are going with the first team that will leave, and we leave on Friday. It's a team made up of several doctors from our church, a couple of pastors, and we will be joined by ministry leaders in Kenya. I will be speaking the next couple of Sundays in churches in Kenya, and then I will be doing some seminars for pastors and ministry leaders along the way. Our medical team, our, our docs, will be consulting with clinics, quasi-hospitals, and seeing some patients, just a few probably. But what we're really excited about, in, in addition to all of that, is we get to visit with our WBC, our wonderful WC missionaries in Kenya, and there are several of them that are doing extraordinary things that we are so excited to spend some time with. Uh, and in addition, we will be spending time with our ministry partners, Nairobi Baptist Church, will be preaching next Sunday, a week from today. Um, what Josephine, this wonderful uh, woman in Nakuru, is doing with this orbitage and uh, kind of the ministries that are growing out of this. And then we're going to go up to uh, Turkana and, and explore all of the Hope Kenya aspects of, uh, of this ministry. We'll be with uh, church leaders, we'll be with the leadership, the international leadership of World Relief, and we can't wait. So I just want to ask you to be praying It'll be a busy time, but it's going to be a great time. I ask that you would pray that we would be servants, that we would lift up Jesus Christ, and we would listen and learn from our African brothers and sisters. Now, let's go on to Galatians. Galatians, and you may not know this, this short little book in the New Testament was written in a crisis. Not a marriage crisis, not a financial crisis, but a theological crisis. So Paul's message in Galatians is like dynamite thrown into a dark room to shatter the walls, to shatter the barriers of unbelief, fear, and theological error. And as a result, Galatians is this beautiful exposition of freedom of joy, of significance and security, what our hearts all long for. Because Galatians brings us face to face with the grace of God in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. What it is to believe the gospel, what it means for us as Christians to live gospel-centered lives. Now, one of the cool things about Galatians for us as a church, Wheaton Bible Church at this point in our journey, is having rolled out our values uh, last fall, Galatians, I want you to know, is really the theological basis and the explanation of our first and most important value. The gospel isn't just the starting line, it is the whole race. The whole race. Now, what does that mean? Well, what that statement means, what Paul explains in the book of Galatians, is that the gospel isn't just the ABCs on how we enter the Christian life. Rather, the gospel is the A to Z of how we live our entire lives before Jesus Christ. 
This is the bombshell Paul drops in this little book. That the gospel isn't merely how we enter the kingdom, it's how we thrive and live in the kingdom. And so we call this, as Christians, gospel-centered living. It means we look to Jesus, we don't look to ourselves. It's what Jesus has done, not what we need to do. It's the gospel of grace that is ever, ever before us. And frankly, that gospel-centered life is the key. I mean the key to healing the human heart. And it's the key to being fully alive individually in our families, in, in the marketplace, wherever we are, whatever we're doing. Because if you as a follower of Christ will continually, continually eat with joy the food of the gospel, you will stop shopping for food elsewhere. So let's go to Galatians chapter 1. Let's begin at the beginning. This is Paul's first letter, written just a couple of decades, maybe a little less, than, a couple decades, I should say, after the death of Jesus Christ. Written about 48, 49 A.D., uh, Galatians in your Bibles in the New Testament comes right after 2 Corinthians. If you're accessing it with a Bible and the racks in front of you, it's page 1167 or thereabouts. And what I want to do is I want to do two things this morning. I want to look at the crisis. I want to look at the dark room. I want to look at the problem that Paul's ad addressing. And then I want to look at his initial statements about the solution. So let's begin in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. Now, Galatia in the first century was a region in what is now southern Turkey. Paul continues, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now let's back up and let's go back to the beginning. Today when we write letters, we usually begin with one word. What's that word? Dear. Even many of our emails, we begin with the word dear. Now it's a little odd when you think about it, right? I mean, dear is an expression of intimacy. It's how husbands and wives speak to each other. The two most important words for any husband are yes, dear. <laughs> yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear. But we apply to schools. We apply for jobs. 
uh, 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 we send emails uh, uh, of complaint or with suggestions. All the people we have never met probably never will meet, and how do we begin? Dear. Now, really, that, that term is a holdover from ancient introductions. But if you go all the way back to the first century, uh, these writers never began their letters with a single word. They began their letters with multiple sentences. And it, you, the sentences usually had three components. First, the writer identifies himself or herself. A statement or two about who he or she is. Then they have some statements about the readers that they're addressing. And then there's this third component that we see in uh, Paul's letters, an expression of thanksgiving or appreciation uh, for their stand for Jesus Christ. When we come to Galatians, it's the only letter Paul wrote where there's no thanksgiving. No expression of appreciation. Instead, Paul immediately jumps into the gospel, which is his subject, which he explains in verses 3, 4, and 5, and in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, he uses the term gospel five times. And Paul, in verse 6, expresses astonishment that these young Gentile believers who had come to Christ just a year or two earlier under Paul's first missionary journey are now deserting the gospel. They're abandoning it. They're abandoning Christianity and they don't realize it. So the question we need to ask, well, what was going on? What was the problem? What was the crisis? Well, the problem was that false teachers had come into these churches throughout this region and had insisted that if you, as a believer in Christ, wanted to follow Christ, then you must keep the Jewish cultural and ceremonial traditions of the Old Testament law. So you had to follow the dietary restrictions. Uh, you had to be circumcised. You had to observe the festivals and the feasts in certain days. So let me show you this a little later in the book. Turn to chapter 4 and verse 9. Paul says here, but now you know that God, or rather, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Don't you wish Paul would tell us what he thinks? Uh, do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? And here it is, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. And Paul goes on and says, I feel like I've wasted my efforts on you. Now turn to chapter 5. We see another illustration of this in verse 2. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised to your circumcision, Christ will be of no value to you. These are Gentiles, not Jews. And skip down to verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by the law, by your performance, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. In other words, what Paul is saying is that these false teachers were legalists. They were moralists. They're known as Judaizers. Uh, telling Gentiles that they had to become Jews in order to become Christians. And that was a big deal. 
The false teachers said, yes, believe in Jesus. We, Jesus is good. We want you to believe in Jesus. Uh, but if you, you want to be saved, you have to obey the regulations of the Old Testament law. Therefore, according to the false teachers, salvation was a mix of faith in Christ and human achievement, what they needed to do. And by the way, even as Christians today, we all fall into this trap. You know, if I do this, then I will please God. If I do this, then maybe this is going to happen in 2017. And actually, what was going on is that these young Gentile Galatians were hungry for a deeper spiritual experience. It was common in their day. And so they thought that these false teachers were just completing what Paul had taught them a year or two earlier. But Paul writes this bombshell to say, no, time out, no way. You are in the process of ex exchanging salvation by grace for a performance-based Christianity. Now what Paul is doing is he's acting like a doctor who is shouting, don't take that pill, don't take that medicine. It will kill you. And that's what's going on here. Only well, it's not medicine, it's the gospel. Now, uh, let's bring this up to date. When you stop and think about it, uh, some of you are a little uneasy with this. Uh, because we live in a, a world uh, today uh, where this flies in the face of our thinking. You see, uh, today uh, we believe that no one should tell another person that their beliefs are wrong. We value tolerance above everything else, uh, especially religious tolerance. But often, if you take this a step further, our tolerance is just a masquerade for indifference. You, you see, we don't care about beliefs because we don't believe beliefs matter. But wait a minute. What about the Nazis killing millions of Jews and Europeans, World War II? Did they all wake up one day and say, hey, let's do mass evil? No. What happened is that they believed, believed some racial groups were subhuman and didn't deserve to be protected. And so let me put this to you. The question uh, uh, for you is, uh, do you believe all humans are equal? All he humans are equally valuable before God. Do you believe that what the Nazis did was wrong, was evil? If so, that's a belief, that's a religious belief, just as the Nazis had a very different belief, a very different religious belief. Or let me take this a step further. Take two men. They both apply for the same job. They both are rejected. Uh, but the one guy bounces immediately. He's confident 
super confident that an even better job is just around the corner, so he moves forward, but the other guy sinks like a rock and, and lapses into darkness and, and despair and even depression. The different emotional response isn't because of their circumstances, it's because of their differing beliefs. If you ever try to talk someone out of suicide, what you're doing is you're contradicting their beliefs. If someone teaches you false beliefs, then your life is warped. And yet in the first century Greek, behind our English translation, the third word in chapter 1 and verse 1, after the words Paul and apostle, is the word not. Not. Paul doesn't begin his letters that way. And then you go down to verse 6, and Paul uses the word deserting. In verse 7, it's the word perverting. And then twice in verses 8 and 9, Paul repeats one of the harshest statements in the Bible, let them be eternally condemned. The Greek word is anathema. Let them be cursed. Paul, and this is my point, is not afraid to say some beliefs are right and some beliefs are wrong. As a matter of fact, you will never change as a person. You will never change anyone's life. You will never help anyone if you can't say this is false, this is false teaching. And it's, that's really hard for those of you that are peacemakers. Look at how Eugene Peterson puts it. I love this quote. He says, a failure to get it right in our minds always becomes a failure to get it right in our lives. If we believe wrong things about God then we will think wrong things about ourselves, others, and life. So beliefs matter. What Paul is revealing here, what Paul is demonstrating is very different than the spirit of our age. So be careful. Paul is saying there is right and there is wrong. Paul is saying there's nothing more important than how you understand the gospel as a Christian and its implications for your life as a believer. And this is Paul's point. Beliefs, beliefs matter. Now that's uh, a, a bit of the, the problem, the crisis. We'll see it more and more as we go forward in our 13-week study. And so what I want to do now is I want to flip to the second part and I want to look at the solution. Or I should say more accurately, Paul's initial statements about the solution that he'll unpack later in Galatians. So let's back up a little in chapter 1 and I want to camp now for the rest of our time in verses 3, 4, and 5. Because Paul crams into these little verses the whole gospel. He crams into these three verses, three, four, and five, everything he will say later about the gospel in the book of Galatians. So what is the gospel, Paul? And by the way, Paul, why was it so important to you that you were willing, you were willing to lay down your life and be killed, be martyred for the gospel? 
You and all the apostles. Well, what Paul tells us in these three verses is that the gospel is Jesus and his work on the cross in our behalf. Jesus is the subject of these three verses. Do you see this? And all the clauses in, in these verses are just comments on Jesus. Now, for those of you that are coming from religious traditions, backgrounds, different denominations, uh, this is an incredibly, incredibly helpful section here. Now, in the first half of verse 4, Paul tells us what Jesus Christ did. He, he, he died for us. I'm going to come back to that. Then in the second half of verse 4, notice Paul tells us why Christ died for us. He died for us not because of anything good in us, but because it was God's merciful will. It was God's plan. It was God's idea. God thought it up. God carried it out. And then when we come to verse 5, he tells us what the result of what Christ did is. And that is that God would receive all the glory. God would receive all the honor. God would receive all the praise forever and ever. Now I want to digress for a moment. Because I had a spiritual experience earlier this week. It didn't last long, but it was potent. I was thinking about this term glory in this context. And I was overwhelmed with the notion that in the kingdom of God, none of us, not a single one of us, bring anything to the table. That my salvation, my growth, um, my victories, my accomplishments, whatever those are, uh, my ministry, my, my circumstances, are all... God's gifts of grace to me. And as I, I, I pressed into that, uh, I, I, I thought, you know, there will never be a day in this life or in the life to come that will be a glorify Rob day. Not even an hour, not even a moment, not even a nanosecond. That all the glory goes to God for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. But then when I look into my heart, and this is kind of my, I'm sharing with you the, my, my process of thinking. Uh, I look into my heart and, and I see that I am addicted to manufacturing my own glory. I'm addicted to making my life about me. To succeed, to exceed, to win, to prove I'm right, to prove I'm gifted to whatever. And as Paul Tripp says, I am a glory thief. I want the glory. But Paul says, in whom be the glory forever and ever. And I saw clearly for a moment that everything that is good comes from God and he gets all the glory and therefore I have nothing to prove and in that moment I completely and totally relaxed. And I experienced a peace that words can't express because it's not about me, it's about God and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. 
I experienced in that moment freedom. Now look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. In other words, when we understand that there is an indescribable jaw-dropping glory that is coming and all the glory goes to God, we are free to admit our weaknesses, our failures, our sins, our fears, our insecurities. We are free to stop trying to prove ourselves. We are free to stop being defensive. We are free to experience the liberty of humility. Freedom. And in that moment, I tasted it. Now let's go back to verse 4, chapter 1 and verse 4. So what does Paul tell us Jesus did? Well, his language is Jesus gave himself for us. He died for us. And that word for, that preposition for us, means in behalf of or in place of. In other words, Jesus' work on the cross wasn't a a, a general sort of abstract theoretical sacrifice. It was a substitutionary sacrifice. He died on behalf of you. He died in your place. Not to give you a second chance to try to do better, but to do for you what you could never, ever do for yourself. And notice in verse 4, Paul uses the word rescue. Man, if you're writing down this, if you mark in your Bible, circle that word, underline the word rescue. It's a dominant theme in the Bible. In the Old Testament, We are told in the book of Hebrews, speaking about the Old Testament, that Joseph was rescued from all his troubles. That Israel was rescued from bondage in Egypt. And then then just a little later, from certain destruction at the hands of Pharaoh's army. A little later in the Old Testament, we are told that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were rescued from the fiery furnace. In the book of Job, think of all the calamity uh, Job experienced. Uh, Job says, I love this statement, in six calamities he will rescue you. And if you love the book of Psalms like I love the book of Psalms, then you know this word rescue, this theme of rescuing or, or deliverance is a dominant theme in the book of God. Oh God, please, everything's falling apart, rescue me. Or elsewhere, God, thank you that you have rescued me. Thank you that you have delivered me. That's what God did here for us in December. That's what God longs to do in your life. And then we come to the New Testament. One of the first stories we read in the Gospels early in Jesus' ministry is that Jesus rescues Peter from drowning, a metaphor. And then in the book of Acts, God rescues Peter Peter from imprisonment delivers him, opens the doors. Peter's free and certain death. 
And then with Paul, Paul is over and over being rescued by God, rescued from angry mobs, from shipwreck, from poisonous snake bites. Everywhere you look in the Bible, God is rescuing humanity. And all those thousands and thousands of many rescues point to this one rescue that's being expressed in our verse, verse 4. Jesus Christ gave himself to deliver us, to rescue us from our sins, from, as Paul puts it, the penalty and the power of evil, from the present evil age, the penalty and power of evil. Now, you understand, don't you, that no other founder of one of the world's major religions died to rescue us. No, no one did that. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did for us. But if you ask the question today, if you're walking out in the street and you know they're taking a survey and you ask the question, well, what is a Christian to people on the street? You know what they'll say? Well, they'll, they will typically say 90 plus percent of the time, a Christian is someone who follows the teachings of Jesus. Follows the example of Jesus. But here in the term rescue, Paul is saying that's impossible. You and I aren't equal to that. You and I can't follow the teachings of Jesus. Uh, you don't rescue people unless they're lost, unless they're helpless, unless they're drowning. Those of you that are uh, parents, if one of your kids is struggling in, in water, in a pool or in a lake, uh, you, you, mom and dad, you're not going to look at each other and say, okay, go get the swimming manual and throw it to them and tell them to read chapter 2. You're just not going to do that. Uh, now let me press this. Yes, Jesus came to teach us, but he primarily came to rescue you. To rescue you. Christianity is by far, in comparison to all the other major religions, the most pessimistic about the human condition. So the God of the Bible didn't send a swimming instructor who said, get back in the water and try harder. Or an encourager and saying, you know, you're doing okay. Keep it up. You'll be okay. Keep breathing. Keep, keep kicking. No, God sent Jesus who plunged into the water, dying in the process to keep you afloat, to bring you to safety, if you will stop fighting and believe. Now this is the gospel. Christ died for our sins. And each and every one of us need only one thing to admit our need. To admit that we are drowning. That we can't rescue ourselves. That we cannot swim to heaven. 
You see, the difference between a gospel-centered life and where the, these young Galatian believers were headed is in a gospel-centered life, it's not about what I do, it's about what Jesus Christ has always done. And so my focus is always on Jesus. And yes, I live a holy life, and yes, I give myself to the things of God, but it says a thank you as an expression of gratitude, not to merit something or to somehow manipulate God's will in my life, but as an expression of gratitude for all that God has done for us in Jesus. So we live Jesus-centered, gospel-centered lives because we know we cannot rescue ourselves. And friends, that is true throughout the entire Christian experience. And I want you to understand this. The gospel isn't just the starting line, it's the whole race, it's the whole race. You see, the problem with the Galatians was not that they didn't believe in Jesus. The problem was that they thought they could still swim on their own. Paul's point is, you can't. As a matter of fact, he calls it a false gospel, another gospel. It's not even a gospel, he says. So what about you? Uh, do you believe that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone? Or when push comes to shove, do you believe that salvation, that growing in Christ, is a mix of what Jesus has done and what you must do? Now, don't misunderstand. I am not saying go live whatever way you want. I'm talking about motivation before God. It's gospel centrality. Do you believe that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone? That the way you grow as a believer is by continually looking to Jesus as Hebrews chapter 12 says, by fixing your eyes on Jesus. You see, today, um, I think in evangelicalism, there's, a, there's an incredible superficiality among us. And, and we say, okay, done that, believe that, and now, okay, I, I'll do this, I'll do that. And, and we leave Jesus in the dust. Do not do that. When you understand that God became a man to become a carpenter, to experience suffering and death on your behalf, who would never wear a gold crown, only a crown of thorns, who took the nails, all to rescue you, not because you're good, but because he loves you. And when you see that, and, and when that begins to stir your heart and, and melt your heart, you know what's going on? You're growing in the gospel. And when you grow in the gospel, you get God. I can't do this. Thank you that Jesus did. God, give me the grace to live for you. God, give me the grace to meditate on the wonder of Jesus' sufferings and death. And you get God along the way. You get the experience, the, the, the visceral experience of the forgiveness of God, the warmth of God, the sweetness of God, the tenderness of God, the acceptance and the love and, and, and the mercy of God. Now, why do I say that? Well, look at verse 6. 
Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting what? It's actually not what, it's who. You're deserting God. Uh, What Paul is saying is when you get the gospel, you get God. As he says, the ones who called you, the one who called you. Now, let me conclude with this. How do you know that you believe the gospel? How do you know that you're living a gospel-centered life? Well, let me ask you this. Is Jesus personal to you? Have you, do you experience the warmth of his love and forgiveness and grace? As we move into this new year, 2017, do you long to be alone with Jesus? To be alone with Jesus? Just as you long to be alone with the people you love. Do you long to talk to him, to listen to him, to pray? To have him speak to you through his word? Uh, Do you take seriously Christian community? This gospel, the love of God revealed in the suffering and death of Jesus Christ isn't, isn't just the starting line. It's the whole race. And I offer to you none other than Jesus Christ who loved you so much he died for you. Paul is saying, you foolish Galatians, you are moving from a gospel-centered life to a work-centered life. Do not, do not make that mistake. Instead, give yourself in 2017 to living in light of the wonder and the grace and the love of God in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this series, for how practical uh, this book is, for how important it is. I, I pray, God, that you would use this series so that this value, our first and most important value, that Jesus isn't just a starting line, he's a whole race, will become um, words that just flow off our lips, that capture our mind, capture our hearts. Would you do that in our lives? For Jesus' sake, amen. All right.